welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. While I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, the contents are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your circumstances. Past episodes of the show can be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And when you visit the website, have a look around. I've put lots of information there for you that will help answer your questions and will provide some options for you. Don't forget to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. If you're ready to speak confidentially with an attorney, please feel free to call me. You can reach me at 212-709-8141. And if anything in this show resonates with you, if you think it could be helpful to a parent, an athlete, a friend, share the episode. And don't forget to do two other things. Subscribe to the show. Also, leave a rating and a review. I read all of your reviews. All right, let's talk. I'm glad you're here and ready to listen. Part two in our series of John Geddard, Why Did It Take So Long? The purpose of today's show is to engage in a discussion that motivates us all by asking why. And then I want to challenge us all to change our pattern of thinking so that we don't end the show with blame, feeling revenge, and just pushing more anger back into an already broken system. In the book, How Successful People Think, author John Maxwell provided a roadmap on how to solve a problem. Problem solving begins with asking why. Mr. Maxwell cautioned in his book against jumping the gun and trying immediately to figure out how to accomplish change, but instead to start with that very simple three-letter word. Why? Because the objective of this podcast and this show in particular is to find solutions to child abuse. I want to take the invitation in Mr. Maxwell's book and ask why to stop and to investigate. To begin this exploration of why, we have three goals for this show. We're first going to take an audit using a timeline of the behaviors of different authority figures and to look at when and if there were failures, if there were anyone had the ability to stop John Getter. We'll discuss whether there is a duty owed and whether coaches, advocates, fans, whether they ignored a duty that was owed to young athletes to not let them be harmed by emotional abuse. The final objective that I want us to achieve during this show is to commit each of us every day to doing one act that strengthens our activist muscle, the muscle with inside of all of us that creates bigger change and can change the way we view children and the way we view competitive sports. To do that, to strengthen that muscle, I'm going to borrow a term from a movement that's going on right now within our wider culture. That term is being an anti-racist. And I'm going to ask that maybe we all should think of ourselves as being against or anti 
emotional abuse of young athletes. And by that, I mean, it's just not enough to be reactive to reports of child abuse, to shake our heads in shame, to be disgusted, to talk about it on social media, but instead that we all proactively seek out one thing that we can do each day. It could be for one minute. It can be for two minutes each day where we read a newsletter. We look at a book. You listen to a podcast. Listening to this podcast is a prime example. Or we enter into group discussions that really seek to promote and welcome athletes and coaches that are aligned with positivity. They're aligned with their minds and their bodies, and athletes are allowed to freely express themselves. So let's begin with taking a look at the timeline and auditing that timeline. I've gathered this timeline from different sources, some include ESPN, local Michigan newspapers, and this is what I have found. Beginning around 1984, Geddard was the head coach at Great Lake Gymnastics Club in Lansing, Michigan. It's reported that that is some of the early contacts that Geddard had with Larry Nasser. In 1988, Geddard was named the male coach of the year by, at that time, the U.S. Gymnastics Federation. In July 1991, while coaching at that same club, the Great Lakes Gymnastics Club, Geddard began to position himself as an award-winning coach. And he did that through his connection with a very talented athlete, and forgive me if I say her name wrong, Missy Gruppe, G-R-U-P-E. She was awarded in 1991 the Junior Olympic National Championship. She won that championship. Now, also in 1991, Geddard was fired from that same Great Lakes Gymnastics Club. A few years later, in 1996, Geddard started what is now the infamous Twin Star Gymnastics Club. That was his own club. And we see that Larry Nasser begins to regularly treat young athletes in the back room of his club. Starting in the late 1990s, there is an anonymous report by a 16-year-old gymnast who spoke with authority figures and let them know that Nasser, that Larry Nasser had performed an inappropriate procedure on her at Twinstar. And this Young lady said that Geddard knew about this, that it was brought to his attention. A few years later, in 2013, we see Geddard comes back on the screen or on the radar of different authority figures when there's an, a criminal investigation that's underway that's looking into his abusive treatment of gymnasts. In fact, the local prosecutor's office, the Eaton County prosecutors, they stated that there was not enough evidence to go forward at that time, but they allowed Geddard to seek some type of counseling instead. I don't know if it was anger. Typically in those situations, sometimes prosecutors, they'll have different alternative to prison, alternative to different programs. I don't know if it was some type of anger management or counseling program. In December of that year, this is 2013, there are reports that USA Gymnastics was informed by Geddard's employees that he was abusing athletes. And let me go back before this, before 2013 and 2011. So two years earlier, someone that worked at Twinstar, a woman, an adult, had said that Geddard had assaulted her in the parking lot outside of the gym. No charges were filed in that incident with those allegations. Now coming back to December 
the end of 2013, when USA Gymnastics, this is, and we don't know if they knew beforehand, I'm just saying what's been reported. But in 2013, USA Gymnastics, they never came public about any type of reprimand or what was being done now that they had information about allegations of abuse. But instead, it is my understanding that USA Gymnastics addressed privately the concerns that gymnasts and parents had about Gettard. We know that just the year before, Gettard had, 2012, Gettard was identified as the head coach for the women's USA team who won gold in the Olympics in London. So Gettard was producing for USA Gymnastics so to speak, when we know, I have to put a footnote, the athletes, I should say, were producing, the girls were producing. We're in 2013, but I have to take us back to 1996. So from 1996, covering 2013 and ending in 2018. So for that time period, while Gettard was coaching at Twinstar, he was twice investigated by police for allegations of physical assault. One of those investigations, it's reported and alleged that Nasser convinced one of the women who was complaining about Gettard to take back, retract her complaint. We know that it's alleged one of the athletes, her name is Bailey Lorenzen, a former gymnast under Gettard, reported that Larry Nasser, Bailey, during her victim impact statement, at the Larry Nasser trial, she had stated that she had suffered a serious injury. I believe it was a fracture to her back. And at that point, it's alleged by this gymnast that Gettard had picked her up off of the floor and forced her to continue practicing. The allegations are that individuals knew about this assault to Bailey and that nothing was done. We also learned that over the course of that time period, anywhere from around 1996 to 2018, other gymnasts, Michaela Thrush, one gymnast alleged who trained at Twinstar under Gettard, that he pushed her into a training apparatus, tearing muscles in her stomach and causing her to end her career. Michaela also alleges that there were several times, not only with her, but other gymnasts that were training there, where Gettard had told them that you should go kill yourself, that Michaela was pushed and thrown by Gettard on the bars where she would train, that one push was so violent that she suffered an injury to her neck, that she suffered injuries to her face, a black eye, and she tore muscles. It's also alleged, and a lot of this came out through the impact statement during Larry Nasser's trial, that it was known that Gettard would make gymnasts scrub the bathroom floor using toothbrushes if they were caught eating anything that Gettard did not approve in. So several forms of emotional and physical abuse were reported over that time period, 1996 to 2018. Included in that, you know, in that emotional abuse was regularly berating the girls, pushing them, and then also humiliating them, stepping on their toes to get attention. And as I said earlier, these reports are coming. This is gleaned from victim impact statements and also different reports from ESPN. It wasn't until 
2018 that USA Gymnastics suspended Getter after he was implicated or there were ties shown between he and Larry Nasser in January. It was January 23 of 2018 that USA Gymnastics announced that he would be suspended, that they were now in 2018, going to look into the allegations of abuse. But you'll recall from the timeline that USA Gymnastics knew or should have known of the abuse since the 1990s. Coming now to this year, the top of this year, February 2021, Gettard was finally charged with 24 crimes, felonies. Included in those were 20 counts of human trafficking, of minors. There was a count for criminal sexual assault and also lying to police. We know the part of the ending of this timeline is that John Geddard, while facing felony charges, he was allowed the privilege to voluntarily turn himself in unaccompanied. And it was at that time that he committed suicide. I can't go past this point without just making mention to the fact that usually it's customary when an individual is facing such serious charges, trafficking of minors, lying to police, lying to police, that law enforcement would go and involuntarily apprehend the person either in their home, on the street, or their place of business. They wouldn't be given the privilege of driving themselves to surrender. So that is notable that this man with decades of allegations pending against him with now very serious charges is allowed to drive and voluntarily surrender himself. That's worth noting. And it leads us to, again, ask why. Why was he given that final privilege, that final benefit of the doubt, even when he was charged in February of 2021? And also over the years, why was he allowed continued access and opportunity to children? Was it because of his past accomplishments, awards, or perceptions that he was a winning coach, a community leader? Maybe it was because of the way he looked. He was a white male in our society. He had no criminal record. He had a house, a business, a family. John Getter's privilege in many ways is no different from the benefit of the doubt that's given to priests or celebrities or professors that later we later learn to abuse children. There's another answer that I found when we asked this question, why? Why it took so long? Could it be that we as a culture, as a community within our homes, within our neighborhoods, that we have an inherent doubt of children, of what they say? Do we not give the presumption that children understand what's best for them, that children can accurately recall events? Do we really not believe that children know the difference between the truth and a lie? And maybe they're just, you know, they're being overdramatic or they're being so too sensitive. Maybe it's the belief that children, we believe children just need to toughen up, that they need some, you know, extra tough, you know, practice sessions. They need to get ready for a very bad world. I'm taken to an example of where children are not believed. The reports of the St. Gilbert's School for Children, it was run by the Religious Order of Christian Brothers. And it was known and reported that a teacher there had a conviction for a sexual offense. Children complained, and this individual was continued to have access and opportunity to children and continued to abuse them for several decades. Another example that highlights why we may not believe children 
and also gives us understanding as to why it took so long. In the case of John Geddard, look at the system failures of the Olympic coach, swim coach, the Irish swim coach, George Gibney. It was reported in the New York Times that Gibney avoided trial in 1994. He was charged with 27 counts of rape and sexual abuse against young male and female swimmers. An Irish appeals court ruled in his favor that the charges and the allegations that took place from 1967 to 1981, well, they were just too old and they lacked detail. The children could not be believed. And what happened? George Gibney, for now, he's escaped prosecution. He continues to have access and opportunity to be around children. And he lives right here in the United States near Orlando, Florida. So I can begin by answering this question of why it took so long with this. It took so long because we still have embedded in our conscious and our thinking, giving the benefit of the doubt to individuals that are in positions of authority because of the way they look, because of their awards, because of their position. It took so long because we still have in our minds, in our culture, the belief that children may be oversensitive, they could be inaccurate in their recollection of events, and they don't know what's best for them. Let's turn to the law for some additional clarity on this issue. Is there a duty owed to young athletes? Is there a duty owed to keep them safe from emotional abuse? How does the law view that duty? Courts and judges often use what's known as the model jury instructions. And attorneys use this as a guide during a lawsuit or during trial to understand the legal definitions and to understand what needs to be shown in a particular case. The term negligence as defined in the model jury jury instructions, negligence occurs when there's a failure to use a degree of care, precaution, or vigilance that a reasonable, prudent person would use under particular circumstances. Now that care can be both by taking an affirmative act, which a reasonable person would have done, or it's when you admit to do something, you don't act. It's an admission that a reasonable person would have done under the circumstances. And how do we define a reasonably prudent person? Well, that's a cautious person. It's one that is reasonably vigilant, cautious, and they're prudent. So to summarize, people are required to exercise some type of foresight, prudence, or caution that a reasonably person would do under the circumstances. Negligence occurs when we depart, when we go away from that standard of care when we don't act or we fail to act or we don't take precautions. I want to make this definition apply to authority figures. And in general, the law says that authority figures, they owe a duty and to both act. And there is also a harm that's done when authority figures fail to act. Most commonly, we see this duty imposed on parents. They must act to keep their children safe. But then it's also imposed on individuals who take it upon themselves to step in the shoes of the parent, so to speak. For example, school personnel, teachers, in some cases, and I would argue coaches, they owe a duty to exercise reasonable care for the safety of young athletes entrusted to them. I would argue that this duty extends to keep young athletes safe, their well-being, 
when they are participating in sports, when they have complete control, which in so many ways John Geddard had, had control. Parents, it's alleged, were not allowed to always be present. So these young children were under his care and he owed them a duty. And by not acting, whether it was reports by the 16-year-old that Larry Nasser was inappropriately performing procedures, whether it was not acting when a child complained of pain or fracture, then that's a breach of the duty that was owed to that athlete that should have. And this is now when I'm speaking about these concepts, a lot of these concepts are applicable. They're applicable in both a criminal court setting and a civil court setting. But specifically in the civil court setting, when we think about these duties, we think about that over the course of that timeline we talked about, you can see several instances where John Geddard breached this duty that was owed to young athletes. I would find that similar to school personnel, if the facts are correct, if the coach places themselves in a position where they exercise total control over a young athlete, their parent is absent, and the coach is presenting themselves as an expert, that they should be held accountable for injuries that result in their failures, either by directly doing harm or by not preventing harm when these children are entrusted to them. So we know that the law recognizes forms and a duty that's owed in that position, if you are an authority figure in that position, and if you proactively harm or if you fail to act, that that can cause harm and that you should be held responsible. We know that the law recognizes that. Now let's discuss how we can take action to become not just reactive, but be proactively against abuse, anti-emotional abuse. That leads me to the one action that we can take every day to strengthen our mental muscle so that we can think of new ways so that the abuse of children in competitive sports is no longer normal. We can make that commitment because we want athletes to start their sports journey, to go through that journey and to end it with positivity. We want to create a future where we avoid the harm in competitive youth sports. Each fan, friend, athlete, and family member, we all are committed and must commit to work together at the earliest signs of abuse so that our athletes no longer feel uncomfortable. Like we said, and we saw in that timeline, as early as the 1990s, children were suffering emotional abuse and there was a failure at several points that allowed not until 2021 for formal charges and an investigation to take place. But we could stop that. We can stop that by making it not uncomfortable for athletes that speak out, but making it uncomfortable for perpetrators, making it uncomfortable so that abuse is no longer, emotional abuse, physical abuse is no longer normalized. When we see abusive language, conduct, or even passive aggressive behavior used against young athletes, we have to call it out for what it is. Emotional abuse lives in the same ecosystem, the same world of sexual violence. The two often go hand in hand. And that's why we see this very close relationship 
between Larry Nasser and John Geddard. Many individuals have commented, both survivors and different reports, that Larry Nasser's sexual abuse of hundreds of gymnasts was made possible because of the emotional abuse that we saw in John Geddard and other coaches. Every time we see feel or identify a young athlete who's being subjected to emotional, verbal, or physical abuse, begin with asking why. You can ask, why are those words being used? Why this? Why couldn't this situation be handled differently without any type of verbal or emotional abuse? Why does an athlete or coach, why is there the need to push through? So say if there's a training session where tensions are unusually high and it appears that the parties are exhausted, why is there a need to push through? Maybe there's a need to step back and come back in an hour or in a day. Why? Why are coaches such as John Geddard frequently allowed to violate policies and codes codes of ethics? Why is that acceptable? And why isn't it each one of us, our responsibility to follow up with authorities above the coach and to make sure that some type of action is taken? Those are the ways that we can strengthen our activist muscles and how we, each of us, individually and then collectively can become a community where abuse, emotional, the physical abuse of youth athletes is no longer normalized. If anything that I've said on this show resonates, was helpful, please share the show with an athlete, a family member, or friend. Be sure to check out my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com, where there's past episodes of the show there. And you'll also find information and solutions to questions that you have. Keep asking why. Keep making this a better, a safer place for youth competitive sports. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you again shortly. All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.